A Brush With is sponsored by Bloomberg Connects, the app for arts and culture. Created by Bloomberg Philanthropies, Bloomberg Connects lets you access museums, galleries and cultural spaces around the world on demand. Download the app to access digital guides and explore a variety of content. Hello, I'm Ben Luke and welcome to A Brush With, a podcast where I talk to artists about their influences from the worlds of literature, film, music and of course art and the cultural experiences that have shaped their lives and work. In this episode, it's A Brush With, Sadie Cha, who explores folklore and speculative fiction, familial and collective histories, diasporic identity and the climate emergency through painting, sculpture, film and performance. Zadie, a Canadian-Korean artist, was born in 1983 in Vancouver in Canada and is now based in London. She studied first at the Emily Carr Institute of Art and Design in Vancouver in 2007 and a few years later at the Royal College of Art in London. I remember the first time I encountered Zadie's work at the Freeze Art Fair in London in 2018 and being struck by how individual it was. It was exuberant, full of high colour and made in a huge range of materials and media, from a video work to hand-sewn fabric pieces and richly patterned wearable items of clothing that she's called magical garments. But it was also profound in its subject matter, the way that every item seemed hewn from a complex cultural sampling, reflecting on Zadie's experience within the Asian diaspora and her passionate engagement with forms of pop culture. The jacket she created evoked traditional Korean costume, but also American athletic varsity jackets, and on them and the textile hangings were well-known symbols used to stereotype or other Asian bodies, the yin-yang symbol and sword blades, for instance. There were also conch shells, which appear in Zadie's work in multiple manifestations. They refer partly to the semi-matriarchal culture of Jeju Island off South Korea, where Zadie also made a film of the female Hyenyo divers catching seafood. But the shells also act as as a kind of portal to her ancestral Korean homeland, where she's never lived. So matching that exuberance in Zadie's work is both a form of longing and a complex intellectual inquiry. Sadie's research leads her to extraordinary discoveries which she uses productively and distinctively. She's long been fascinated by Korean shamanism for instance and the shamanic deity Princess Barry or Barry Gonju, a figure that guides souls from the realm of the living to the underworld after death, features in numerous works including in the installation she's making for a show at the Whitechapel Gallery in London in September 2022. One of her most complex pieces, which relates to this interest in Korean shamanism, began its life as part of London's Art Night Festival in 2019, and then travelled to various venues. Child of Mago Halmi and the Echoes of Creation, as it was called, was loosely based on the almost forgotten Korean creation myth of the giant goddess Grandmother Mago, or Mago Halmi, who, as Zadie told me in an earlier interview, created geological formations, bridges, fortresses and lakes out of her excrement and mud. Zadie's interest in this figure was partly feminine, she was passionate about retelling the story because it had only relatively recently been rediscovered after being diminished or caricatured through history because, as she said, male scholars didn't find this an interesting story. In the project, she linked the goddess to killer whales and their matrilineal family structures. Bringing orcas into the work also allowed her to explore the climate emergency and how human activity has destroyed the whales' habitats and led to their becoming endangered. 
The final presentation of the child of Magahalmi was an immersive, subaqueous world. It was a fantastical combination of performance with dancers and a percussionist, spoken word, video projections and sculpture, including those clearly alluding to orcas, fins and conch shells, which doubled up as containers for speakers, creating a surround sound experience. All of Zadie's major projects are collaborative and since 2006 she's worked particularly closely with the artist Benito Mayor Vallejo on these performances and installations. Underlying Zadie's research, her cultural and art historical references and her concerns with social issues are personal stories. Zadie's mother would tell her Korean folk tales as a child and she said that they act as a nostalgic entry point to exploring aspects of Korea's history. Killer whales were a staple of her childhood imagination in Canada and importantly a remythologized animal within local indigenous cultures. She says that whenever she thinks about orcas she thinks about her home. So I began our conversation by asking about identity, about how Zadie's lived experience infuses her work and the way that it brings together the personal, the cultural and the political. So I always say this, I studied painting in my undergrad and my master's and I've always really been interested in identity politics But whilst I was in school and just kind of doing traditional painting, I was always thinking about these things in relationship to people, clothing, and landscape. So I guess that's kind of geolocation, geography, and, you know, I guess like place, yeah? And then as I started kind of working towards uh, garments and performance, it really harkened back to my time as a young person when I was really trying to figure out who I was. Um, in North America. And, you know, I think a lot of kids end up doing that via pop culture and media. So I started thinking a lot about different clothes that I thought were cool. And I think really helped kind of form the person I was a lot of music and pop culture that was interesting to me at the time. So this would have been like the mid late 90s, early 2000s. And that's essentially how all those garments earlier uh, were made. They were kind of directly influenced by certain silhouettes and certain kind of musical stars that I was attracted to. And slowly it's kind of morphed into looking at more kind of traditional clothing um, from South Korea, but at the same time really keeping in line with kind of um, contemporary fashion or fashions of, you know, my teenage youth. So I think that is a way in which those things directly are influenced by how I dress and how I look at fashion and how I look at what people wear and how I think people move through the world with intention and projections of who they want to be. So those are things that I'm consciously and unconsciously thinking about whilst I'm making work, irrespective if it's a sound piece or performance, you know, textile work that's to be worn or to be hung or painting. So even with music, I'm still really influenced by a lot of the kind of producers that I was interested in in the late 90s. Right. And and in terms of how that then manifests itself in terms of form, is there a sort of to and fro where you're thinking that might be too on the nose, that might too directly relate to a particular kind of experience or a particular means of expressing elements of identity, for instance? Yeah, I think that's a really good question. I think earlier on, I was trying to be not for the sake of how things would be read, but for me to make that jump from two-dimensional painting into textile work and performance, I thought, right, I really liked these silhouettes of these jackets that I thought were cool when I was into skateboarding and snowboarding. And they had like, you know, different 
patches on them, what bands you might like, brands that you identified with. And I think that's how the kind of patchwork thing kind of manifested within my practice. But the way that kind of um, illustrated itself in the earlier work was kind of mimicking that directly, like using kind of signs or symbols that, you know, might have seemed important to me or that I put value into or directly taking things from pop culture that had like, you know, multiple meanings like the yin yang, for example. And then I slowly kind of wanted to move away from things that were so obvious that felt like they could be read really easily and on the surface. And I think because it has always been much more complicated and nuanced for me with frictions that don't always seem obvious and apparent if you're kind of stylistically inserting certain aesthetics in your work, particularly if they're relating to popular cultural moments of specific I guess for someone in my generation, like pivotal moments in like much music or MTV history. And so I think that's why I slowly started thinking about those elements, but kind of fading them back into things that might relate to the what seems like it's the traditional or kind of folkloric clothing, because I guess I want to seem a lot more slippery. And I think that even comes back to not wanting to use my face in my work as I used to do, because I think that at the moment seemed very exciting and new for me and it was kind of a way in which I would make myself feel vulnerable and that felt really exciting and it kind of made it feel like the stakes were very high like this was very important so I'm putting myself into it whereas now whilst I still feel that way I also don't want to allow certain ideas or how I'm thinking or myself be so readily available and consumable within the work looking at your work, experiencing your work, I'm always conscious about this sense that there's a kind of journey and the journey manifests itself through the work, but through the research too. And I wonder to what extent do you want that feel of a kind of process of self-discovery, but also kind of almost like um, geopolitical discovery going on? Do you want there to be a sense that things are in flux to a certain degree? You know what? I think it's a really good question. And those are things that I think about for myself as the person who is also consuming the work. I think one really important thing to preface is as an artist, I'm not ever in the position where I'm like teaching lessons. I'm not like talking down to viewers and other people that might encounter the work. I'm kind of proposing questions even to myself. I I feel confused about things. And so I guess this kind of word flux or being in that state of flux is, is something that's really important to me and how I move throughout my life as a person and how I've moved throughout my life as a diasporic person and also how I am as an artist and I feel as I get older I'm less obsessed with being very much anchored and cemented into a certain set of fixed ideas where it's like you know identity politics and the history of colonialism if you come from a colonial country and you are part of kind of a, a settler lineage you know whilst you might also occupy other minority identitarian you know subject positions etc cetera, etc cetera, it's very complicated and i think the easy way people often feel like you need to approach those things is to have a yes and no answer you know with maybe like two variables but I, as I get older, I just realize it's just it's so much more complex and I'm more comfortable with seeming like you don't really know all the time what the artist is thinking or maybe what the journey is, because I think it's much more of a authentic reflection on how uh, most people are moving through life. Absolutely. And I wondered if collage, therefore, is the kind of perfect form for that to a degree. And I don't mean like in the sense of a paper collage. I mean, in a way, when I'm seeing your live works I I feel like I'm watching a live collage and it seems to me that that's a manifestation of diasporic 
discovery or, or exploration, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, I've always thought of assemblage and collage as like the best way in which you can physically manifest those feelings of kind of being many parts, but also whole. You know, I, I don't feel like these are things that only people who are like, you know, are part of a diasporic experience or might embody different identities. I think everyone feels this way. We're all many different pieces. And so I just think it's um, kind of the best reflection of how I myself grew up, but also the things that I'm most attracted to. So I'm really, you know, inspired by hip hop music and hip hop production. And the reason why I think I've always been interested in that is there is always kind of a citing of sources in some ways where there's a, a kind of a historical approach to how things are being made. If you throw in like a horn from, you know, this jazz section from whatever period in American history, you can tie that to certain moments of a kind of political unrest or political happenings. And then how that might mix in with what the song is about. I feel like that's something that I also really enjoy in painting. Um, when I look at historical painting, I love when you see like, uh, oh, Picasso made that ode to Goya or like that brushstroke is a reference to, I don't know, like Velasquez and Velasquez was also looking at Titian. Like, I just think that those things are really cool. And that's what I also really like about um, using collage or using disparate pieces of information, but then also going back to what you were saying of not being so on the nose with things. I think it's very cool when there's like, you know, a contemporary pop song and then there's kind of layered beats that you might not know you know what instrument that comes from or what really important song from a certain part of history or even you know internationally speaking in terms of let's say world music where it comes from I think that's more interesting that things are layered because that's essentially how we all are isn't it there's certain hidden parts of us that we might not always even know that we're connected to so and I think one of the interesting ways that that manifests itself in the work is through this balance of theme and form in the sense that, for instance, you might reference Korean textile traditions whilst also illustrating a very, very deep story from the culture of Korea. And so there's all, the, all these sort of interesting correspondences, in a way, between theme and form or subject matter and form. Can you say something more about that? Yeah, I guess, like, I think more recently, I've really been using kind of the structure of folk tales or children's stories or speculative fiction as a kind of skeleton or framework by which I can express other ideas that I'm interested in or kind of personal reflections that I'm having on contemporary life. But I think one of the things, if I kind of tie it back into what I was speaking about, let's say like the way hip hop is made, I'm really interested in kind of incorporating or putting side by side, let's say, you know, aspects of traditional Korean patchwork with the kind of ideas of assemblage through contemporary fashion, and then how that ties back to my interest and involvement with like snowboard jackets and the snowboard and like stickers and patches that you would place on yourself or on the body to show people who you were so I've just kind of done this weird loop around but that's kind of always how my brain works so whilst you're looking at something that might look like it's very much rooted in traditional craft I'm also really thinking about the crafting of let's say identity projection. Performativity is really important to me in my work. I think a lot of people think I'm a performance artist and I actually don't consider myself a performance artist mainly because I just don't feel like I have the right to do so because it's not the kind of principle, you know, focus in my work and also because I just didn't study it so I feel like there's no I have no claim to authenticity or or agency within that. But 
I guess I really like that idea. If one is talking about identity construction and music influence, why not directly touch that and bring that into one's work? That was one of the kind of draws for me to think about performance and textiles in my work, where I felt like with painting, you know, you can't really bring like, you know, whatever, a five by four painting out on the street and kind of walk around as if you're embedded in everyday life. It's just not the way it is unless you're like transporting that piece from one place to another. Whereas if you make something that can be worn, it's something that exists in life. And I really love that. And so when you had mentioned, let's say, Korean patchwork, and then I'm also thinking about the physical performance of that during that time where people who, you know, didn't have a lot of material means were collecting scrap pieces of fabric and sewing them together in community, in and amongst um, a you know, group of women to build something new and to kind of work past poverty, basically, I think is really incredible. And so I like how those things merge, as you just said, you know, presenting the physicality of what that is through material, but also kind of the act of how that's made. So those things are very important to me. And I think that those are things that I think about all the time throughout my work irrespective of its live performance sound or even like kind of illustrative paintings so these are things that have to make sense I'm I've always said that I'm an ideas-based artist even though having a studio practice is so important to me but the ideas are really what anchor me to kind of allow me to make decisions of what needs to be made and how they need to be made and in what material I wanted to ask about the sort of mode of your work to a degree in the sense that on the one hand I'm really conscious that a lot of it could be a space for mourning in the sense that like climate change is a big theme in your work the climate emergency and then on the other hand you're addressing Korean shamanism which is deeply under threat and the reason I ask about mode is there's always something very interesting because it isn't just mournful there are elements of celebration there there are elements of deep respect for tradition and for instance for the natural environment and it seems to me that it's more complicated than than just a, as you say a sort of kind of didactic approach to climate emergency for instance yeah I think because I often use things like uh, the climate emergency or um, the kind of subject position of the Korean shaman within the social structure of contemporary Korea and Korean history as focal points to speak to larger issues. So what I'm really interested in is power, positions of power, and how that power is used to subjugate other people and animals. So when I made this exhibition with Remy Modern in Canada, which then, you know, traveled to Leeds, the exhibition was essentially about interspecies kinship and how we could possibly work together to combat climate change for example but really what I was interested in saying because I made that show whilst you know collectively we were witnessing the Black Lives Matter uprising in the states and all the protest movements was kind of the sense of community you know in and amongst us and how we could possibly work towards change by working together you know and I used animals and the environment as kind of analogies to that because whilst that's true in how it works in nature, how would we mimic that within our everyday lives? So for example, you know, the kind of relationship with, you know, everyone's talking about fungi or whatever, but you know, the mycelium network, how that, you know, is connected to other things that are in the ground that then regenerate themselves, et cetera, et cetera. That kind of cycle, that was really interesting to me. And Korean shamanism, whilst I'm deeply interested in um, the practice and how 
the people who participate in that and the shamans themselves are kind of uh, outcasts within Korean society. I'm interested in that as a metaphor to speak to positions of power at large and in general to think about injustices within the world and also the position of, let's say, uh, colonial perspectives or oppressive positions that are trying to eradicate, you know, indigenous or um, ancestral forms of knowledge, worship or practice, you know, which you know we can look at everywhere. So and that doesn't have to just do with something that's sounds anthropological in the, in the wide, larger sense, we can think about how that might affect, you know, a low income, a working class people, you know, in, in local neighborhoods and kind of the, the positions of power and pushback, you know, people are having to deal with with their local governments, for example, like, you know, and I'm not so explicit with how I say that, because I'm not an artist that, you know, I'm not going to have a, a data chart, I'm not going to provide like factual information. It's not to say that I don't actually research and think about these things. But I'm more interested in pointing to ideas that might circumnavigate those talking points, those thinking points through storytelling. And I think that's where I fall back on the idea of using, let's say, fables or folk tales as a way to talk through those things. Because I think even in the past, those stories were kind of meant to spread information to the illiterate classes as a way to speak about morality or social like you know, issues of the day. And I think that when you have that type of critical distance, we're able to criticize and punch up in a way where it's less threatening, I suppose. I wanted to ask about collaboration, because it seems to me, on the one hand, your work is very copiously credited. You know, it's a really sort of heartwarming thing when you see an artist who's who's very open to crediting everybody they work with. And also that idea of collaboration just being absolutely central to your work. For instance, with Benito Mayor Vallejo, who is, I guess, your principal collaborator. And increasingly, you know, you have sort of dual named works. So tell me about collaboration, why it's important and in a way what your role is in that collaboration. Yeah, I mean, I think that all artists collaborate with multiple people all the time. I think you're right. Lots of artists don't credit the folks that are involved with the kind of creative ideas, the making, the production, because I think that historically that's just not really been done. There's such a focus, I mean, particularly now on the celebrity of an artist, the one person that we all need to focus on, you know, but that's just not realistic and it's just not factual so you know there might be some artists that really do work completely on their own but you know no one lives in a vacuum or a bubble we're all reading things from the past or contemporary stuff listening to music listening to podcasts going to lectures and I kind of think about every idea that I encounter in my life is having that type of collaborative spirit and also for me I just think it's ethically morally wrong like there's so many people that contribute to my work and that might not even be with production in the studio that's the kind of technical team AV and otherwise in institutions the curatorial team the press team there's just so many people that are involved to elevate and help platform you know in quotes one person's idea it's just it's not realistic I mean it's ridiculous so I just think crediting people particularly those who are really intrinsically there in the process is just the right thing to do and I think the reason why it's so important for me is you know you might have an artist that is very well known to have huge studios and clearly they're fabricating things just because the production levels of their work is just so high spec so I mean that I guess I can kind of understand because it's under the rubric that we all get it like Jeff Koons is not there sculpting his things it's fine it's not the point of his practice right but I think for me I make my work right I know how to paint I know how to make things with my hands if there is someone who's involved in that process it's very easy and likely that 
me as the artist will consume that or cannibalize that within the kind of public reading of the work because I do make stuff. So it's really important that even if I have support with making work, I will credit people, even if they don't really have creative involvement, right? So if someone like Benito, who's, you know, I've been working with this person since really 2006, when we first met, we met in university in Canada, and he's my life partner. This type of collaboration that we have, I would say it's much more profound than having an artistic collaborative partner because realistically I am kind of in in that relationship like the art director I'm the one who's kind of provides the framework of what I want done but because there is a level of trust and a level of knowing one another this person is able to provide ideas through the lens of what he thinks will be best for my work or what could work you know and you know provide a certain set of ideas that wouldn't otherwise work if it was coming from someone I didn't trust or his position isn't as like two artists that are collaborating. He's really kind of like um, bending over in order to really support my ideas. But I think because of the kind of creative input in terms of exhibition design, just even having another pair of eyes or ears to really fall back on, there's a level of involvement that almost surpasses the collaborative quality to it. You know, similarly, the dancers that I continue to work with a different process but it's similar in the sense where I come to them with ideas and they bring a lot of stuff to me so if I don't then credit them it's very easy for people to think that I've choreographed the entire thing and I haven't right so that's just the thing that's really important and I just hope that more artists follow suit because it's very obvious (laughs) especially with the level of kind of production of some artists and the amount of work that they're making they're not working alone Let's move on to the questions that we ask all our guests. Who was the first artist whose work you loved? The first bit of artwork that really motivated and inspired me to want to be an artist was the Disney animation movie of The Little Mermaid. When I saw that, I thought, this is what I really want to do. I want to be a Disney animator. That was when I was, I don't know, that movie came in like 87 or something, 88. So, you know, I was like five. And then I think the first artist that I really, really loved their work, I think it probably was... Kara Walker, when I was in undergrad, I think that there was just this level of kind of potency and historical reckoning and power that I recognized in her work that was, you know, scary even, but I thought was very thought provoking and made me feel really, yeah, emotional in ways that I think other artists didn't do for me at the time. There's a sort of physical and emotional shock with Kara Walker's work, isn't there? Yeah, and I think. Because, you know, in the early 2000s when I was studying my undergrad and where I was studying this kind of conversations of colonialism were so present. But because I studied in Vancouver, there was always kind of a layer of conceptual coolness and distance, right? Whereas with her work, I mean, it was so physically palpable, but also kind of what we spoke about earlier with my work, she's also doing that form following function there's a very specific aesthetic appropriation or taking that she's using as a way to flip it on its head and that subversion or addressing a certain set of ideas using the aesthetics of the time so that to me I think was really appealing and also you know on the other end of the spectrum John Curran I felt when I was a young person I was very attracted to his work as well because I felt like he was quite rebellious this was in a time where people hated painting and 
is that conversations of painting is dead and you know he was very popular at the time and I, I enjoyed that satirical nature of that subversion of him kind of you know whatever criticizing waspy rich people culture which you know of course as his career became bigger there's other issues that come around that but I love that kind of inversion of being able to be satirical or commenting on something politically through that inversion or that taking of something and flipping it on its head so yeah. You, you mentioned that you were at school in Vancouver and at the Emily Carr School, which is a very famous school. Mm. To what extent were post-colonial discussions at the heart of the teaching in that school? Well, I think what I realize now as an older person, it was how lucky I was to study there. I think unlike my experience in London, conversations around post-colonialism, thinking about Indigenous artists, local Indigenous artists kind of politics about like the settler colonial state whilst maybe they weren't as explicit as the way conversations are now they were still present and I felt that that conversation was palpable or we talked about those things I took post-colonial studies when I was like 22 years old in art school I had incredible professors and colleagues where we would have these difficult conversations and I mean the school is even I mean from my outside perspective, seems like it's gone far beyond that, which is incredible. And I just didn't have that experience here. So it's kind of amazing to see all these conversations happening now. But whilst I was at the Royal College, it was just non-existent. It was actually really dismal. And so I can't, in words, even express my gratitude for the time that I spent there. And I know that, you know, people listening to me that are still living there would probably and rightfully so disagree because there are so many nuanced complex issues that are going on and one thing is to talk about things in academia land another thing is to see the reflection of what's happening locally and what's you know in front of your eyes but those years really formed me as an artist in ways that I feel like I you know I'm indebted to them in a lot of ways even though whilst I was there I was incredibly frustrated I think conceptualism was really really pushed on us I never felt like I had space there you know I will say this on record I've never even been invited to do a show in Vancouver which is fine even though it's you know the place where I was born and the place where I hold so dear and the kind of place I'm constantly thinking about whilst I'm making work but um, yeah those conversations were were huge and particularly with very specific kind of academic tutors I wouldn't really necessarily say the studio tutors were that way but yeah the kind of academic tutors were really rigorous in terms of that discussion but that's just because of those are the local conversations that are happening which historical artist do you turn to the most today do you know what I think now I'm looking at a lot of Korean folk painting and oftentimes these people don't have names because they were basically just kind of artisans so historically, those are, yeah, those are the artists that I'm looking at. So no one, no one within the canon that we would be talking about or taught in Western institutions. And where do you see those works? Online. And sometimes, you know, I've, you go to, you know, let's say the British Museum, for example, and it's, the Korea has always got a very small section of works. It's always very disappointing. Um, so yeah, online and in magazines, stuff like that. And in a way, does the lack of data, if you like, about the people that have produced it, in a way, sort of make it more interesting in the in the sense of mining the material or somehow unearthing more? Um, you know what? I think it's just not the central focus for me because I look at the work as having a different function and value uh, for the community that it was made for, or what it was doing, where it wasn't about celebrating one artist's genius, for example. So it's just functions in a different 
way. That sort of brings up this whole idea of use value in terms Mm -hmm. of your work, doesn't it? Because, of course, you're making work, you're Mm -hmm. making artwork which gets displayed in art spaces. But so often, it seems to me, there are masks. There are, as you've talked a lot about costume, about clothing. Mm -hmm. So much of the work, it seems to me, can be used. And that seems to to be a sort of hugely important element of them. It is really important. I don't know what that comes from, but you know, there are certain things that may not even be used in performance, but I want them to have a functionality, even if it's not practical. So there are certain garment works that I've made where one could wear them as a jacket and that wraps around your body, for example, like it has armholes, but structurally it's just made to be fitted on the wall. I don't know what that is. I think there is a tie into reality that I really like, that it can exist in one's everyday you know, outings. I I don't know what that's about. It's something that's interesting to me. So for example, if I were to make sculptures of shoes, I want them to be worn. And I'll give you a really bad example. I'm going to put myself out. So if you look here, I know this is a podcast no one can see, but there's some sculptures on my walls. There's a, there's two fox heads and two look like cabbages. Those are meant to be shoes. They're not functional. The reason they're not functional is because of the production timeline was very tight. But that to me was very disappointing because in the past, Benito and I have worked on other sculptures that are shoes that can be worn, you know? So that to me was, that's a, that, yeah, that's like, 10 points deducted or something. So, uh, you know, it makes no sense because they are essentially just static sculptures. And that's how we rationalized it to ourselves during that very tight deadline. But now looking back on it, you think, yeah, if we made them again, you'd want them to be worn, even if they would never be worn. Exactly, because when you display them, they can appear entirely in a kind of museological Mm -hmm. structure. And Mm -hmm. it seems to me that's, again, that's an interesting payoff between, Mm -hmm. you know, you've got these potentially functional objects Mm -hmm. and then you have, there are systems of display that you're Mm -hmm. playing with as well, Mm -hmm. right? And I think that must just be my real love and interest of clothing. So it's not the fashion system I'm interested in. I'm interested in that for other things, not within my work, but within my work, I just really love clothes. So, you know, traditional clothing, contemporary clothing, everything. I I like the way people have to dress in uniform and whether they're kind of people that work at TFL or construction um, site folks that have to wear these kind of bright yellow things that, you know, you see other brands and like taking and like Balenciaga and copying or whatever. I think it's just that, that I'm really interested in so many different ways and forms of expression to change the body and to change the look that one's going for and the kind of person that they want to be that day or they have to be that day. I think that must be it. That must be that reason why this kind of functionality is so important in the work. I want it, I want the things that I make to be able to lie beside those things in a convincing way. That's great. Um, you talked about Kara Walker, but which other contemporary artists do you most admire? So I think one of my favorite contemporary artists right now is Lee Bull. So I've got a photo mm. of her there when she was a younger artist and she's wearing this amazing costume. Another Korean artist that I really love is Hae Yang, who recently had a show at uh, Tate St. Ives. Mm. And also Kim Soo Ja, another Korean artist. And then another Korean artist, Park Chan Kyung, who I really love. Yeah, and I guess all of my colleagues, you know, and I'm not just saying that. I genuinely really admire the people that I'm working alongside. You know, I'll say specifically in London, just because that's where I'm based. All the ones that everyone loves. Anthony Hamilton, Taishani, Cecile B. Evans. You know, these are artists that I look up to, I talk to. You know, whilst our practices might be different, you know, I'm constantly looking to them as reference points or speaking about, you know, books or movies that we might be interested in even if they seem frivolous like pop cultural moments these kinds of mini conversations they feel like are really important 
It's interesting that because you're not part of a movement as such, but it seems to me that there's definitely a, a, a kind of artist community amongst artists who are working in very different themes. But the thing that seems to ground them all is a kind of research and also a kind of fascination with fantasy storytelling and all that sort of thing. Mm-hmm. And, and, and even though the work may look and seem entirely different, mm-hmm. there are lovely correspondences, mm-hmm. it seems to me, in London right now. Between yeah, absolutely. Artists. You know, Sin Waikin and other artists. I'm really interested in artists who dabble in theatricality that, uh, you know, work within installation and work with immersive environments. I guess, like, not because I necessarily want to create modes of escapism, but I like the idea that one is able to escape into worlds to learn something about the world in which we live in at present. What do you have pinned to the studio? Well, we're in the studio now and we're surrounded by your work, right? But do you tend to have other other works pinned around you at, uh, on occasions? Do you know what? So this is the thing I'm blaming also on the iPhone. <laughs> when I was in grad school and in undergrad, and when I was working in between those you know moments of education, I always had printed material plastered over the walls. You know, you have mood boards. And I still work that way, but it's all in my phone now. So it's all via like uh, saved Google images, Pinterest, or whatever. And I hate it. I think it's the same way in which people do research on their phones and don't go to the library and like take books out or make notes in the margin. I know it's something that a lot of people fall into because it's just the way we're living our lives, but I find it really regressive in terms of the development of my work. But at the moment, I have a little makeshift shrine (laughs) to my dog that passed away in 2018. So he's got a little ancestor shrine there. And then I just have some of my, you know, previous sculptures that I worked on with Benito hanging up. And then I have, yeah, like a poster I made. And just that one photo of, of Lee Bull, that's it. And I just have a bunch of knickknacks. I think my dream is just to have a large studio and I have like a wall dedicated to like granny knickknacks. This is something that's like my version of art collecting, you know, my version of not having money and being able to buy like knickknacks from the charity shop or if I'm lucky, like on Etsy or eBay, if I splurge on something. <laughs> A Brush With is sponsored by Bloomberg Connects, the app for arts and culture. The free app offers access to more than 80 cultural organisations through a single download. In New York State alone, there are more than 25 institutions, from upstate centres for modern and contemporary art like Dia Beacon and Magazzino Italian Art, to botanic gardens in Brooklyn and the Bronx, as well as a host of museums. One of New York's most prominent galleries of contemporary art is MoMA PS1, where Zadie Char had an important early exhibition. If you download Bloomberg Connects, you can find a guide to PS1 that includes in-depth explorations of its exhibitions, including its summer 2022 shows. You can find out more about photographer Deanna Lawson and listen to her talk illuminatingly about why she chose her medium. And you can read and hear about Life Between Buildings, PS1's history of community gardens in New York City. To explore digital guides to all the partnering institutions, download the app today. It's available from the App Store and Google Play, and you can keep up to date by following Bloomberg Connects on Facebook, Twitter and Instagram. Which museum or gallery do you visit the most today? I guess it's a mixture between the V&A, the British Museum, and Tate Britain and Tate Modern. And it's not because I think that I mean, they are like the best ones in the world of amongst many others. But I guess what I like about those is that there's the collections that you're able to look at that kind of speak to different parts of history. 
those are the things that are most interesting to me. And then to commercial galleries, I mean, yeah, sometimes it's really good to do gallery days and you just see a bunch of stuff that you either really like or you don't like or you feel indifferent about or you hate. But I think even sometimes seeing stuff that you hate is really good because <laughs> it elicits some type of emotion. I think it's better to see something that you're like, oh my God, because you're actually having a reaction to it. So you can think about that and you're thinking in tandem as opposed to going in somewhere and not having any type of feeling and feeling completely neutral. Does it in a way does it sort of throw you back into the almost a sort of art college crit situation, <laughs> you know, where you, you have to evaluate other people's work and yeah. you're having to respond to yeah. it in some way? Yeah, of course. Um, I think that it is harder to do for me in commercial spaces because it's so evident that things are on display to be sold. And so <laughs> you're looking at the intent and purpose of presentations. You know, I understand that when someone is playing within that arena, there is a certain mode of presentation one is going to do there than maybe a different thing if they do something in another space. So when I say that, it's not even to be critical. It's like the criticism should be appropriate to what you're looking at. You know, I can also go in somewhere and think, my goodness, this abstract painting is beautiful. And that's it. Like, I don't have to get anything else from it. And I like it. And I know why it's there. I know who's looking at it. And I know who wants it. And that's it. You know, it's fine. And then I might go somewhere else and, you know, look at something and feel like this is really difficult and a bit boring, but it's creating some type of feeling in me. It's making me think about something or maybe points me to a direction of another artist or a moment in history or something that's happened that I don't know about that, you know, I might prod and poke more, even if the show itself didn't really do it for me. When you go to the V&A or Take Britain or Take Modern or whatever, do you return to certain places as a kind of rhythm, if you like? You know, mm-hmm. there are, are there certain works that you have to see when you go to certain places? Mm-hmm. I think I do that less in London. Well, I used to live in Madrid and, you know, Benito and I would go to the Prado like every week because we lived very close unlike London you can actually afford to live in the center of the city um, and so we would always go to see very specific Rubens Goya or Velasquez painting so it's not necessarily the room but it's a certain painting that you want to see and a certain way in which you know uh, a hand was was made I, don't, I mean these are things that were important to me when I was younger I think now oh actually you know I changed my mind you know it's not the V&A it's not the British Museum it's not the Tate Britain or Tate Modern it's the National Gallery that's the one that we always go to and um, yeah it's the same thing we you know even though the history of painting doesn't hold the weight it did for me when I was younger. I still go to that museum and look at things as instructional guides. And so I still do that. And, you know, it's just the classics. It'll be to see like Van Gogh, for example, or to see actually like kind of, there. what's the wing when you go in the Sainsbury wing and you turn left? It's like kind of, is it the Gothic area? Well, yeah, I mean, the, the medieval yeah. part of the collection, all actually, the, you know, early Renaissance I think bits, that's yeah. my favorite mm. section now, whereas when I was younger, I, I wasn't into it. I wanted like the big Baroque kind of style paintings. But now there's just that weird stuff that I like. Mm. And I think because there's all these like weird hidden messages and I'm interested in how the literacy of what you needed in order to confront those images. And I think that is probably why painting is still interesting and important to me and my practice, but it just functions or it like posits itself differently now. Yeah, that's interesting. Obviously you did a performance there, Scorpion, which Mm -hmm. was actually set directly within, you know, surrounded Mm -hmm. literally by Velasquez. Mm -hmm. How did that feel to, Mm -hmm. to make a work directly surrounded by those incredible masterpieces? Well, you know, it was really amazing. I felt so privileged. Like the curator we worked with, Puresh Mystery, like he just 
facilitated that whole experience in such an incredible, flawless way where he allowed us to rehearse off hours, like when no one was there. Can you imagine? You're in like in that Spanish room and you're with performers you're working with. They're not wearing shoes. I charged my iPhone right underneath the Velasquez painting. That's bananas, you know? I mean, like I just couldn't believe it. And I just felt so incredibly lucky. And one thing that we kept talking about was probably very annoying to Puresh because I think he was like genuinely like, I have to work here and be here all the time. You don't put this in my head. I was like, there's ghosts in here. Because I just, <laughs> when you walk in the National Gallery at night, there's like these timed lights. And so as you walk into a room, they just go on. It's very theatrical. So every single time you walk into a room, the lights, they don't just turn on abruptly either. They, they kind of go from, you know, dark to dim to light in a really beautiful way. And then all the paintings are spotlit. And you really feel like the presence of the people that are being portrayed in the works, but also the artists themselves the many many people that have passed through those spaces I mean it's really incredible so yeah that was amazing I feel like maybe don't even have words for it because it's not only just what I just mentioned but also the very nerdy aspect of me being from Canada and being so far away from any cultural points where like old master paintings would be in quotes seen in the flesh that was like so important to me and my friends when we were you know an undergrad like oh can't, can't wait to see this in the flesh like it's it like nerdy jargon painting jargon but you know if you don't grow up in England or in Europe you don't have access to things like that or New York or even Toronto like I grew up in Vancouver it's very far away from these other places you know you can't just like hop on a bus or you know so it, it was amazing and, and did it make you see the work differently? Because one of the things that I was really conscious of watching the video of that piece is that I was seeing sudden correspondences between the costumes of your performers and those elaborate costumes in the Velasquez's on the walls. And how conscious was that and how much did it sort of affect the reading, if you like? Well, uh, that was all very deliberate. <laughs> so, you know... Uh, Benito and I chose that room very specifically, I think, for our own sentimental uh, kind of reasonings and desires, fulfilling these teenage desires, essentially. But also because I really liked where it was located within the museum. You have to kind of walk into the heart of, I felt like, the museum. And then when you look at all those paintings, that's right, you see these kind of... That, that red fox costume is an ode to, not only to, like... Uh, Francis Ford Coppola's Dracula, right? Um, and the amazing costume designer on that film, but also to all of those papal paintings of the Pope. And right, I was thinking very much about Velasquez's Pope painting. I mean, it's in Rome, but I was still thinking very much about it. And so I liked that play. And even the paintings that were made for that, we wanted to use references in the other paintings. So there you have the checkered floor and some of the things. You have the ways in which a window is inside of a window, the perspectives. And also really thinking of like jumping in and out of like portals and yeah, like time capsules. Because that's essentially what paintings are. These paintings are time portals, right? And on so many levels, not only because they were made in a certain time, but they were illustrating and depicting and speaking to and maybe changing histories of certain moments in time, you know. Which cultural experience changed the way you see the world? Um, I went to South Korea for the first time when I, I think I was 11 years old. And that changed my perspective. Uh, this sounds very silly, especially in the time that we're living now, or if you, you, know, you traveled a lot as a young person. But for me, it was really wild to go somewhere that was so different to the place I was. But it also existed on the same planet. And that sounds really ridiculous, but I, you know, I was like 10 years old or 11. It just was amazing to me that 
there was an entire way of being that was so outside of the way I was used to it in Vancouver. And then at, at that age, I realized this is happening on like multiple levels in the thousands. And that to me seemed amazing. And then the other thing I will say it's related was when I learned how to speak another language fluently. And I did that as an adult. It really made me understand that language is also like a portal because you cannot think the same in different languages. And I thought that act of translation and mistranslation just seemed so much wider and interesting to me because I finally understood what that really was about. Can you say more about your response to your Korean background and how that has manifested itself through the work? Because it seems to me really interesting because the way that you've talked about it is that as if you were an alien coming at it from an entirely different place. So Mm -hmm. you are you are Korean, but Mm -hmm. at the same time grew up in Canada. And that Mm -hmm. has proved such a profound Mm -hmm. shift in in terms of how you identify. Can Mm -hmm. you say something more about that? Yeah. I mean, I think that I have a lot of insecurities about who I am in relationship to how we are socialized to present ourselves. So what I mean by that is saying that, yes, I'm, you know, Korean and Canadian, But I also understand that I didn't grow up there and there's a lot of things culturally and socially that are, in quotes, foreign to me. Not because I've never heard of them or I'm completely ignorant, but I understand them and how they sit within contemporary daily life. But there's such a rubbing up against how I function and how I've been socialized. And also, I think there's that insecurity of like, when you're not from somewhere, are you that thing, right? And it's something that I've had to really push back on within myself and also as an artist so what I'm trying to think about now is how that Koreanness exists outside of a geography right and how it exists and manifests and expands depending on where it lands itself right so I remember I listened to this like Korean celebrity chef from LA and he was talking about traditional Korean foods and how someone from Korea might be like well that's not really a Korean XYZ soup because you don't have these vegetables in it. It's like, no, it's a soup from LA, but it's still Korean. It doesn't make it less Korean because it doesn't have those herbs that grew on that mountainside in that village. It's a different thing. It's an expansion of the culture and it's an expansion of the identity. And I'm really trying to think of it from a place of possibility and like abundance in a way that when I was younger, I always thought of that middle zone gray zone as a place of inferiority I'm still really having to push back against that and so there's always a lot of insecurity like oh my god people from Korea are gonna hate my work or they're just gonna think it's boring and I've accepted that because it's like of course they're gonna think it's boring there's so many things that are running through my work that people don't have to ruminate over if you've just grown up in a different position than I have But then likewise, I think an immigrant experience, which is held by my mother, is also really, really fascinating and varies widely from a Korean experience of someone who's just lived there, you know, for their entire lives. And that does not make my mom's experience less Korean, right? So I think that there's an expansion of identity that's really exciting. And, you know, it's really important for me to also say, like, whilst I'm kind of delving into these seemingly very um, specific cultural reference points, I actually feel as though it's the best way for me to communicate across a really wide lens 
whilst also being very personal and specific. So hopefully, you know, I don't know where you're from, but there might be certain ways in which I grew up that resonate with you. And then I might learn something about how you're also feeling in a diasporic situation, depending on where your family's from. So I think those are the things that are most important to me and exciting. And ultimately, it's like really pushing back against that kind of monolithic idea of what the center point of culture is. You know, that's also why I'm looking at a lot of traditional Korean painting or like folk painting from other places in East Asia, because I don't want to constantly be looking at the European canon or like the American modernist canon of art making as the kind of center point for how I should be making my work. So that's also a pushback on a kind of a, a really conscious thing that I'm doing there as well. And I'm hoping that other people do that within their work and it doesn't matter where they're from and then we're meeting in the middle. So that's who I'm feeling like my audience or my like colleagues are. People that are kind of thinking about these ideas and it doesn't matter if they're not from Korea. That's actually the most irrelevant part of it. Let's talk about literature. Which writers or poets do you turn to the most? So I uh, feel like I'm very uncool and on trend on this. I don't listen or like read poetry ever I want to and I think it's something that I've wanted to do since I was like a preteen it's just something that's never really held me but I think it's not because I don't like it it's because I don't make effort for it and I have very very short attention span but in terms of writing and this is very very much on trend zeitgeist brand (laughs) I just really love Ursula K. Le Guin. I will just never not stop loving her stories. I just feel that they're a mixture of all the things that I like, um, speaking about kind of historical injustices, how they might proliferate into the future, or ways in which we can possibly rectify them. You know, you have like wizards and like secret names, and I just love all that. And then also Octavia Butler, again, very much on trend, but I I just think that there's a reason for that and there's a reason why their words are so profound for most people and the kind of stories that they tell. So those are the two that I look to the most in terms of, yeah, literature and the things I think about every single time I'm making an exhibition. And in fact, your Whitechapel exhibition this autumn is directly, well, has an element that is directly in response to Le Guin, right? Yeah, I, mean, I, even, I made another exhibition. Was it an exhibition? It was. <laughs> it's been a long couple of years. <laughs> it was. It's called um, The Word for Water is Whale, and that is also a direct riff on Le Guin's The Word for World is Forest. Um, so that's usually how I get my ideas. If we're thinking about collaboration or appropriation again, I'm always looking outwards as a way to kind of reflect and talk back with. This is kind of the most important thing to me as an artist. I think it's because I'm an only child and I grew up with a single parent. I really yearn for communication. And so that's the thing that I'm most wanting to do with my art. I want to be talking with other artists and viewers. It's not like I'm talking down to, I'm talking with. I want to be in conversation with. Mm-hmm. And I've just been reading Butler, so she's very fresh in my mind, partly on the recommendation of so many artists, which mm-hmm. is fantastic. I wonder if there are the particular Butler works that have yeah, kindred. Yeah, that's just so powerful because I think it's like it's terrifying. It's so scary. And I think, OK, there's many reasons why it's terrifying. The first one is like, what would you do if you were put in that situation? You know, I think oftentimes when you're living in the present, it's very easy to say like, if I lived during this time, I would have done this, you know. But it's like, it's very scary in those moments to push back against authority, right? So I'll put it into context of something I've been thinking about recently. What would you have done if you were living in like colonial Korea and 
I don't know, there was pressure for you to rat out your neighbor to like the Japanese, right? Would you do that to save yourself and your family? I don't know, it's hard because then you think of their torture and the killing is like a real thing. So that's what I thought about with that book. It's like, oh my gosh, what would you, what would you do if you were pulled back in time? How would you behave, right? And the other reason why I think it resonated so much with me was while I was growing up in Canada, there's a lot of like historical kind of like television shows that seem to be very popular in the 90s, like Anne of Green Gables and these like other like very niche Canadian things that no one here listening to will even know what I'm talking about. But I love these shows and these, these books and my mom did too. And it was something that we bonded over. And I remember... My mom would always say like, oh, these were the, the good old days. I wish that I was alive in these days. And even as a young child who had, you know, dealt with racism, like I'm talking eight years old. I was like, why would you want to go back? Like you do, we do not want to be back in these times in Avonlea or wherever Prince Edward Island in like the 18, whatever, like, no, thank you. That would be terrifying, you know? And so that was the thing I constantly really enjoyed, like a little house on the prairie, but realized if I suddenly found myself outside the Ingalls home, what would happen to me? Right. So I think that was something that also spoke to me when I read that book a few years ago. And I wanted to ask you about the connections between speculative fiction and folk Mm-hmm. stories in your work because it seems to me that one of the things that through looking at your work and thinking about this is that there are loads of correspondences between these two very distinctive forms mm-hmm. is that something that you consciously bring together uh, I'm interested in folk primarily because that's how my first like kind of entry point into Korean culture vis-a-vis my mom telling me stories when I was a kid and so I think anything that you absorb as a young person they just it stays with you for the rest of your life so it's that. And also one of the reasons why I really love traditional Korean folk practices and kind of a craft and an art is because of how it's basically always punching up the kind of criticality of the feudal system, the aristocracy, and kind of speaking to the, the, the hardships of, you know, whatever agricultural feudal life is really interesting to me. But across cultures, you know, that's interesting to me. And also how it was disseminated to the illiterate classes this is why you know something like i don't know stained glass windows that's interesting to me or how kind of the bible I, you know i was raised catholic and so those kinds of stories within children's bibles are also very captivating because it's very good simple storytelling right and i think the thing that i like about speculative fiction it's almost like adult folk tales for me about how there's a kind of obviously a critical lens that's a bit more profound and complex as to what you know stories are being mined or histories are being mined and then kind of reflected back to the reader vis-a-vis a different world you know I, I heard this from someone recently on the podcast they said they really loved the idea of Korean folk tales because these stories like all folk tales have been told for hundreds of years, thousands of years. So when you hear it, it's like your ancestors are speaking to you. I just really love that, you know, and that I think it goes across, you know, cultural borders. We all can feel connected to that. I know there's something about history that I am very interested in. And that's also why I'm interested in ghosts. So yes, I think like a lot of people that are tickled by the supernatural and the unknown of that, what I really am interested in is history and people that have come before us. That's what is essentially the thing that really kind of pushes and drives me. Let's talk about music. You've already referred Mm. to it on several occasions, but tell us um, what music do you listen to while you're working? 
Okay, so you know, I, I don't know what is up with me, but for the past three years, I've not listened to music so much whilst I'm in the studio. During the pandemic, I couldn't listen to any music. I found it journeyed me to places of emotion that I felt like I couldn't handle whilst I was trying to be cognitive while I was making work. And in the past, I know some people like really like listening to techno or whatever whilst they're making work. I can't do that because it puts me off course on concentration and I fall too deep into the music and then I make mistakes and then it's not good. So I listen to a lot of audiobooks and podcasts now. But recently, because Beyonce just dropped the album Renaissance, I've been listening to that. There's probably similarly to the kind of like the conceptual crux of why she made that album, the kind of rejoining into happiness of life or frivolity you know, which is, also seems to me like the roaring 20s or something right before catastrophe is going to happen again. Um, we need a little bit of escapism. It's something that I, I, I guess is just making me feel a little bit more free in the studio. But yeah, don't listen to a lot of music in the studio when I'm making work. I do probably like an athlete listen to certain kinds of music before I'm going to start working to psych myself up. Oh, which, that's really yeah. interesting. And because of the direct references that you've made to hip hop, I'm, mm -hmm. I'm imagining some of that is hip hop. Is that still yeah. a, a big influence? Yeah. So I think just similarly to when I was speaking about um, how things that you encounter as a young person stay with you for the rest of your life, hip hop is definitely one of those things. But equally, I've been listening to a lot of probably very, very bad 90s pop music. But like... People that I'm not even into, like, the trajectory of these, like, bands' careers, but it's because they're attached to certain movies that were important or seemed important to me as a young person. Like, you know that song, like, that Paula Cole song? It's, like, was the Dawson Creek's, like, um, like introductory... You know what I'm talking right. about? I think I do, yeah. Yeah, I'm not going to sing it because I have such a bad voice. You just look it up. But, like, that song or something. Like, I'll like things that I have no tie to. Or, like... So recently, I don't know how this happened, but I started like to have a revisiting of like Leonardo DiCaprio in the 90s, you know, and then I remembered, I was like, oh my God, like there's movies like Romeo and Juliet and Titanic, obviously in Basketball Diaries and thinking, looking at all those soundtracks and listening to them because I think it's just this transportation into time that I really enjoy. On one hand, it is of course for nostalgia, but I think it's like, I feel most creative when I've feel connected to who I was as a young person because I think I didn't have the same responsibilities as I have now of course and there was a freedom to be so enmeshed within daydreaming and creativity that didn't have any stakes attached to them and so in many ways you're like your most freest creative person in those moments a lot of times those things are private those things are held within your diary or your mind or when you're watching a movie and you're thinking about the world around you so I think for me now is as we get older that's something that I'm really trying to connect myself to how I felt when I was a young person but not it's very specific moments moments when you were I guess very impressionable and there were certain things that held real importance to you you know you can listen to a crappy song that you think you're like this is so good and it's like <laughs> You know, Teenage Dirtbag is not a great song. I'm obsessed with it because I, you know, I remember listening to that when I was like in the ninth grade or something. Can you say more about the ways that you've used hip hop culture, like as a direct sort of visual reference? Because like, for instance, the, the rapper Cameron is, I know, is a, like a particularly significant figure in terms of, in terms of like, for instance, color and the way he dressed. Yeah, that's such a funny question because it's very true. I mean, I haven't for a long time, but definitely. So rather than being overtly appropriative about it, I still would recognize him as like 
a rock star idol that I had when I was a young person. I really loved his raps and I loved his cadence and his style. And so when I think about him or when people probably who are fans of this musician think about him, they think of this era in like 2003 or whatever when he would wear baby pink all the time and then later like this purple color and there's just very specific tones that he would wear like so it's just almost like a real formal engagement and also the kinds of the textures and the certain kind of jackets that he would wear the certain kind of satins and like I, I don't know if it was fake fur probably real fur you know anyways just all this thing so even for me just thinking about him that's what it's eliciting to me but then on the flip side I think you know, when I first got into performance, whilst it was not overt, I was really thinking about the cadence and the presence of like pop stars and hip hop stars that I really admired and still do when I was a young person, you know, wanting to like have that type of energy and how it related also to like the Korean shaman figure, the MC, the master of ceremonies, the person, the storyteller who was at, you know, the hearth of the fire telling, you know, a captive audience about their daily life or what was to happen so those were things that felt important to me so whilst on a superficial level yes I love hip-hop music I love rap music it's how I grew up I think as a, a lot of children of immigrants in North America and probably in the UK gravitate towards black music because it at the time for me it seemed like the alternative to white culture that I felt like I couldn't be part of and so whilst I was looking at another culture that I was not participating in or part of and I didn't look like these people have a shared history there are certain commonalities that were attractive right and also because it's anti-establishment it's rebellious right but how that would also relate to like I just said this form of storytelling was very important to me and it still is important to me let's talk about other media which other media influence your work I think that movies actually but not necessarily like in a intelligent cinephile film buff way at the moment what i've been really interested in is like horror and like horror in general but also like korean horror and i think the reason why i'm interested in korean horror is basically because like all cultures that reference things that are scary to you know whoever like I guess The Exorcist is scary for a lot of kind of Western minds that are, you know, grown up in the Christian world or Christian faith. And then likewise, there's a lot of Korean horror thrillers that are embedded and rooted within like scary folk tales that I'm attracted to. So there's that. And also this kind of connection with an ancestral past. Those are the things that have been most interesting to me lately. I wanted to ask you about this film called Is It Iodo, mm-hmm. which is a 1977 Korean film. Mm-hmm. So therefore it was made at a very difficult time mm-hmm. to make that kind of film in, in Korea. Tell us about that film. Mm-hmm. And you've used it very directly in the work. Yeah, like, yes, but no. Again, because I think I have very, very concrete reference points that I'm like thinking about so deeply, but then I don't really want that to show too much in the work. I don't know why that is. Maybe that's being selfish, like, don't know about my references this is mine so I I stumbled upon that film I don't even know how but it was the first time that I encountered like a visual representation of a Korean shaman and so I found that to be incredibly alluring and really engaging to see this kind of middle-aged vulgar crass Korean lady I thought this is so wild you know I think that the portrayal of this Korean shaman was probably negative right 
But for me, from my Western feminist perspective, I thought, wow, this vulgarity is very powerful. She has sexual agency and she's, you know, yes, she's kind of this demonic figure, but it's because she has agency and she has, you know, there's a goal that she's doing for herself. I found that incredibly enticing. So basically, a long story short, it's based on an island at the tip of South Korea. And it's an island that's populated entirely by by women. And it turns out that, you know, there's a reason for that. And, you know, you should just watch the film. You can watch it online for free on YouTube. But what I really liked about it is I felt like there was some interesting correlations with Taishani's DC. They've retitled that work. It's the work that they made for the Turner Prize. It was called mm-hmm. Dark Continent before. Anyways... Taishani also made this work where it was all about this kind of place, a utopian place populated by, you know, women or gender nonconforming people. But that film I just thought was really powerful because of the way in which it kind of subjugated the position of kind of a patriarchal male and how there was these kinds of evil women about. I just found it really fascinating and it actually subsequently led me to travel to Jeju Island in 2017 with my mom and my partner. And yeah, I feel like it's kind of the wellspring for a lot of work that I've made subsequently. I suppose there's a lot of kind of matriarchal touch points in that film and because it references Jeju Island, Jeju Island people might know is also built on kind of a matriarchal um, economic structure which is very different than the rest of um, South Korea anyways. It also has a very very interesting political history so yeah you know these are things that I wouldn't have maybe found myself falling into at that time had I not seen that movie. That's great and you're showing at the the Jeju Biennial later this year. Yeah yeah so So that's really exciting for me actually because I feel I'm able to give back to a place that has given me so much irrespective of it knowing it or not you know and also I think it's really important for me as an artist to be able to share my work with spaces that are not super art world or something I know it's a biennial and there's you know some well-known artists that are going to be in there but the kind of real draw and attraction was to be rooted in that place again and be able to give back I mean that sounds very pretentious but it's the only thing that I have to give back I don't have (laughs) anything else you know (laughs) is there a particular discipline in your daily working life that you see as an essential ritual yes I don't see it as essential it's something I do every day I want to change it because it seems very time wasty but I take a very very long time to get settled in the studio so I have a very very long breakfast Then I'll sometimes like clean my house. (laughs) Then I'll come to the studio. I'll watch some TikTok videos. And then I might just listen to a podcast to get me started. And then I then can start working. I don't know what is that. And oftentimes I'll add in like going somewhere for a coffee. And now that I live in the area that I do, there's like no amenities. I have to like travel to go to like a local coffee shop. Time wasting is what I'm saying is an essential ritual. And now I have a new dog and he has a lot of hair and it takes me, I have to brush him. It takes like 40 minutes. So this is more time wasted. So that's the essential ritual of my day-to-day studio practice is wasting time. If you could live with one work of art, what would it be? So I've said this before, but I still stand by it. And actually, I just watched a National Geographic documentary from 2016 produced and narrated and starred with Leonardo DiCaprio and he talked about the same work (laughs) (laughs) it's uh, Hieronymus Bosch's The The Garden of Earthly Delights and I think the reason why I love that is because it's such a layered complex work right and can you imagine to make something 
from the 1400s and it still bewilder and interest people today and feel mysterious and enigmatic and to be so desire to be looked over so thoroughly i just can't imagine that it's such an incredible piece and there's so many moments in it that will still surprise you and i think even if you have a photograph of it and you study it you just find new things in it all the time and i love how it is very cinematic to me i love those paintings where there's large landscapes and there's different vignettes and scenes happening throughout because it's almost like a camera moving throughout and i also feel like it speaks to time in a really interesting way absolutely and there's also the sort of aspect that is not often referred to but that's the grisaille yes objectness of it you know so the yeah. painting that, that if yes. you shut yeah it's a wonderful grisaille thing and yeah. very and again deeply mysterious yeah if not as spectacular as the what's inside yeah it? it's really interesting and you know as i just mentioned earlier i used to live near the prado and maybe what i'm going to say sounds rude but sometimes when i would go and see i'm like why is this here it's like in like a it feels like a more of like a bunkery part in the prado it's kind of just surrounded by other incredible works. But I'm like, I just, it seems like a piece that you would go and you would just see that in a room. And then mm. maybe some, it's interesting how it almost it's just, deserves the Mona Lisa treatment in a yeah, way. Yeah, <laughs> but do you know what? I think it's because, and I stand by this, the Prado is the best museum for Western painting. It has just so many incredible, like everything in there is amazing. Mm. It's just like the best painting museum, in my opinion. So that's probably what it is. They just, you know, spoiled. They just have so much stuff. You know, they only have so much real estate, I suppose. So they've got to put, you know, all these other incredible Bruegels and stuff in somewhere. Um, yeah, but that's the work. And I love how it changes. You, you open it up, you can close it, you can change how it fits. You know, if, if you're wanting to think about color schemes in your house, you can have it be monochromatic and gray and then, you know, colorful if you open it up. So, yeah. And lastly, what's art for? I think that art is for communicating with people. So it doesn't matter what you are doing if you're a really formalist abstract painter and you're really interested in process and surface and other esoteric art jargony you know modernist ideas and theories you're still wanting to do that in amongst a group of persons and peers that you know are interested in those subset of lines of inquiry right just like how one might want to make films that speak directly to and about a certain situation I don't know, that's what I think art is for. Good art and bad art. That's great, well, Zadie. Thank you so much for joining us on the podcast. You're welcome, thank you. Zadie Char, House Gods, Animal Guides and Five Ways to Forgiveness is at the Whitechapel Gallery in London from the 20th of September until May next year. Zadie features in the Jeju Biennale from the 16th of November until the 12th of February 2023. She also features in Wonder Women at Deech Projects in Los Angeles from the 3rd of September until the 22nd of October. In Soy Dreams of Milk at Blindspot Gallery in Hong Kong from the 10th of September. In the New Bend, curated by Legacy Russell at Hauser & Worth in Los Angeles from the 27th of October until the 30th of December in The Horror Show, A Twisted Tale of Modern Britain at Somerset House Studios in London also from the 27th of October until the 19th of February next year and Zadie's donated a small painting to the fundraising project for the UK charity Hospital Rooms which is in an exhibition at Hauser & Worth in London from the 19th of August to the 14th of September 
And that's it for this episode. Please subscribe to A Brush With wherever you're listening and do give us a rating or review on Apple Podcasts. Do also subscribe to our other podcast, The Week in Art, a deep dive into the latest big art world stories, the top shows and the key issues, which is back in September. We're on Twitter at Tan Audio and on Facebook and Instagram, of course. Production, editing and sound design on A Brush With are by David Clack and the producers of the art newspaper podcasts are Amy Dawson and Henrietta Bentall. Thanks also to Daniela Hathaway and a huge thank you to Zadie Cha. See you next week. Bye for now. A Brush With is sponsored by Bloomberg Connects. Download Bloomberg Connects today and discover cultural institutions on demand.